So study 14 then, we're looking at what Paul says about the end times. What Paul says about the end times. Now that is a fairly vague phrase, uh, but it covers a wide area of what Paul has to talk about to do with when Christ comes again. So you'll see that uh, there's quite a lot of area to cover. Now, as a Pharisee, Paul believed that he was living in the present evil age while he waited for the new age to come with the arrival of God's kingdom and the Messiah. That would be his position as a Pharisee. But... His Damascus Road experience made him realise that with Jesus Christ, as he says in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11, quote, the culmination, by which he means the end or the fulfilment, carrying on the quote, the culmination of the ages has come. The culmination of the ages has come. So now, after his Damascus Road experience, Paul is convinced that the resurrection of Jesus and the giving of the Spirit signify that the age to come has arrived. It arrived with Jesus, although not in all its fullness. That's only going to happen at the parousia, when Christ comes again in power and glory. Therefore, Paul believes that we're now living in a period of overlap, a period of overlap between the two ages. And during this time, death and evil are very much factors in our daily lives, but the power they wielded has been broken. They're still there, they still affect our lives strongly, but their power has been broken by Christ's work on the cross and his glorious resurrection from the dead. And those two powers of death and evil will be dealt with forever following the parousia, when the old age will be at an end, because the new age, in all its fullness, has dawned. Now, when this will happen isn't known. Paul speaks in his letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 14 to 15, he speaks of, quote, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. And he goes on in his letter to Titus, chapter 2, 13, and that we, quote, wait, we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Now, when Paul uses the word hope, it's very important to realise that he doesn't mean hope in the sense that we might use that word in the world. You know, I hope this is going to happen, but I'm not terribly sure, and it probably won't. But I'm just hoping that this will occur. Now, Paul doesn't use the word hope in that sense at all. He uses it, when he uses it, he means unwavering certainty, not wavering uncertainty. Right? I'll say that again. He means unwavering certainty. It's definitely going to happen. Not wavering uncertainty. 
Well, I'm not sure whether it will or not. Okay, so when you hear, hear Paul use the word hope, that's what he means. Now, this is in sharp contrast with the pagan world of Paul's day, which gave no assurance whatever of eternal life. No assurance whatever of eternal life. Although it has to be said, Socrates and other philosophers did seek to prove happiness after death, but there was no assurance of eternal life. Now, Paul encourages believers by saying that God gives us his spirit to strengthen and empower us during this time of waiting for the new age to come. So 1 Corinthians 1.7, he writes, quote, Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. So he's given us his spirit. You do not lack any spiritual gift as you wait. This time of waiting that we're all in at the moment for the new age to come. Now the spirit is also the deposit. Deposit is the word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 5, and then back to verse 4, the deposit of this future age, quote, guaranteeing what is to come. When we will be, quote, clothed with our heavenly dwelling. For Paul, the resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits of this age to come. First fruits is a word he uses to describe it. And Christ is the firstborn. That's the word he uses to describe Christ. The firstborn of the resurrection of all of us, of all believers. See 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and Colossians 1, 18. So we're living in this period of overlap. We're waiting for the coming. We're waiting for the parousia, the coming of Jesus. I'm going to say a little bit more about that later on. And we're living in that period of overlap between the two ages when we look forward to Christ's coming, but death and evil are still big factors in our lives, but they have been overcome. And eventually, when Christ comes again, we'll be sorted forever. So that's about the period of overlap, the period that we're in at the moment. Moving on, Paul speaks confidently of the fact that the souls of believers who die during this period of overlap go to be with Christ after death. And so he writes to the Philippians 1, 21 and 23, quote, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. And again, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, quote, We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, souls of believers go to be with Christ. This is what he is teaching here. Now, quite what happens to the souls of unbelievers when they die is not clear in Paul's writings. He focuses on what will happen to believers largely. 
Now, Paul speaks of the fact that those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ have been saved by his grace and, quote, whose names are in the book of life, unquote, Philippians 4.3, are assured of eternal life. So, we've trusted in the Lord, we've been saved by grace, we've repented of our sin. Paul talks about our names being known to God in what he describes as the book of life. We are assured of eternal life. Quote, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. That's Titus 3, 7. And moving on to Romans 5, 21, quote, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then Romans 6, 23, very well-known verse to many of you. For the wages of sin is death, but, my favourite Bible word, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if we've trusted in God, we have eternal life. It starts now and we know about it in all its fullness when we pass on to be in the presence of God. Now, Paul rejoices in the fact that eternal life was always part of God's plan. It wasn't some kind of additional extra after the fall of man. It is part of God's plan. It was always his purpose that mankind should live forever. And Titus 1 verse 2, he, uh, he writes, quote, In the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. However, Paul reminds believers that the fruit of salvation needs to be seen in the way we live our lives for us to be granted eternal life. So in Romans 2, 7 we read, quote, To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour and immortality, <coughs> excuse me, he will give eternal life. And Galatians 6, 8, Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. See also 1 Timothy 6, 12. And then he talks in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 12, about, and I quote, to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So our deeds are involved in eternal life because they are the fruit of this salvation. They are evidence of our repentance. They are evidence of our salvation and should be seen in our lives. Now this word glory, who calls you into his kingdom and glory, Paul often uses the word glory when he speaks of eternal life and our heavenly future. And he does it to try and convey something of the awesomeness, something of the awesomeness of what 
awaits believers. So here's some examples. Colossians 3 verse 4, quote, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. 2 Thessalonians 2.14, quote, He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 2.10, The salvation that is in Jesus Christ with eternal glory. Colossians 1.27, The glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And Romans 5.2, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now Paul says that living a life that's pleasing to God as we walk the road to glory will bring hardships. But he's convinced that these hardships are nothing compared with the glory that awaits us. So in Romans 8, 17 to 18, he writes, quote, We are co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That's Romans 8, 17 to 18. And then in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, we read, for our light and momentary troubles, I don't know if you recognise this description of hardships that you might go through, but you see what Paul's doing, he's, he's comparing what we have to put up with, with uh, what he's saying, it's not comparable with the glory that awaits us. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. It's almost like we'll look back when we get there and say, it wasn't really much, was it? compared to this. So, that is after death, the souls of believers. Eternal life is promised. The glory of it, the awesomeness of what awaits us. Now we move on to this subject of the last days. Paul believes that before the new age dawns, brought in by Christ's return, there will be a period of suffering. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.3, he says, quote, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labour pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Indeed, Paul seems to be convinced that he is living in the last days as he himself is suffering many hardships and tribulations, and we looked at them in some detail back in study four. Writing to Timothy, Paul speaks of what God has revealed to him concerning the last days before Christ's return. So 1 Timothy 4.1, we read, quote, The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith, and follow deceiving things, spirits, I should say, and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. So there he's talking about apostasy, turning away from the true faith. Now, besides such apostasy, with people falling for the lure of these false teachings, Paul adds, 
and I quote from 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. So he believes that these things are going to happen in the last days. And Paul also speaks of a figure that he calls the man of lawlessness. The man of lawlessness, who is referred to as the Antichrist or the beast elsewhere in the New Testament. If you look at 1 John 2.18 and Revelation 13. So this man of lawlessness, this Antichrist figure, will appear during these last days. Now the coming of this figure indicates that the day of Christ's return is at hand. So in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, 4, uh, 2, 3 to 4, he says, and I quote, that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. End of quote. And then Paul also speaks of someone who is currently restraining such evil being displayed in all its fullness. But at some point, that which is holding the tide of wickedness back will be removed, and the man of lawlessness will come to the fore and usher in what is often called the tribulation, the tribulation. 2 Thessalonians 2, 7-8, quote, For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way, and then the lawless one, lawless one will be revealed. Now, according to Paul, this lawless one will be empowered and energised by Satan to do the miraculous. And as a result, many will believe the lie he propagates that he is God and be deluded into following him with perilous eternal consequences. Carrying on in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 9 to 10 now, quote, The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. End of quote. However, his reign of evil, Paul says, will be ended by the coming of Christ. Verse 8 of 2 Thessalonians 2, quote, Whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendour of his coming. Now then, this passage about the man of lawlessness or the Antichrist raises many questions, which I have to tell you if you don't already know, have been hotly debated down the years. Now these questions include, 
First of all, who is the restrainer in verse 7? Well, this is variously thought to be the Holy Spirit or the church or Paul's ministry or the system of government imposed by the Romans, just to name a few suggestions. Secondly, will the church be in the tribulation brought about by the man of lawlessness or will the rapture occur prior to this? Now by rapture we mean when Christ returns for his church. Now various timetables have been produced in favour of both sides of the argument. Thirdly, as Paul's letters to the Thessalonians were written in AD 51 to 52, was his man of lawlessness prophesied actually fulfilled by Nero, whose persecution of the church began in AD 67, or was it fulfilled by a later emperor? There was a a second wave of fierce persecution under Emperor Domitian in AD 81, and a third one occurring under Emperor Trajan from AD 108 onwards. Question four, is the man of lawlessness to be taken literally or is he symbolic? Symbolic of the rising tide and influence of evil in the world increasing as the day of Christ's return approaches. Now we always have to remember Paul's audience. He was writing to people of his own day and he was telling them about the last days and he clearly believed he was living in the last days. Now, in response to that, some insist that such a Satan-inspired figure will indeed come and wreak havoc on the earth. Now, this is yet to come, some say. Others are more inclined to take the symbolic approach. It just, it just uh, is a figure which symbolises and represents the rising tide of evil uh, in society. Still others say that Paul, since Paul was speaking to his own generation... It's dangerous to extrapolate from this what might happen in the future, getting to all sorts of problems if we try to do this. Indeed, every generation seems to have thought it is living in the last days. Right? When I was a little child, I was taught we were living in the last days. Right? And all through my life, I said, oh, now it's the last days, look at this. And then later on, ten years later, oh, now it's the last days, look at this. And now today, now it's the last days, look at this. Every generation seems to have thought it's living in the last days. And they usually cite 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5, which I've already quoted earlier, about how things will get worse and worse and worse, and what the characteristics will be, and saying, look, this is an accurate description of what we can see around us. It's probably been an accurate description of every single society that's ever existed, to be honest. Not to mention having at least one candidate for the Antichrist. If you look back, if it it was Napoleon and then it was Adolf Hitler and, you know, Stalin. You know, pick who you like from history. Genghis Khan, I don't know. Just any figure that you can think of from history. Oh, they're the Antichrist. Look, look at what they're doing. Right, so you see why some people would say it's very dangerous to start extrapolating from what Paul taught and trying to make it fit where we are today. So that's the problem of this, but it's the man of lawlessness that Paul talks about. And he's saying in the last days before the coming of Christ, which he thought were, they were living in at that time, there is going to be trouble, there is going to be a rising tide 
of evil and there's going to be a figure. And was that figure one of the emperors that we've mentioned? Who knows? As we've said, Paul certainly believed he was living in the last days. We went into this in study five and he believed that Christ's return was imminent. So he writes in Romans 13, 11 to 12, quote, The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. And by the day, when he uses the word day, he means the day of the Lord, which we'll come back to. And he goes on in 1 Corinthians 7, 29 and 30. Time, the time is short. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. Now, Christ's return in power and glory, the parousia, signals the arrival of the kingdom of God in in all its glory and fullness. And it brings the old age to an end. And every knee will bow before King Jesus and submit to his lordship. Philippians 2.10 that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you also get that in 1 Corinthians 15, 27 to 28. Now, Paul describes this world-shaking event by employing various terms. Now, we've already met this word parousia. I've said it several times already. The Greek word parousia actually means presence or arrival. Presence or arrival is what parousia means and it was used to describe an official visit of the emperor to a city or a province. Okay, so the parousia of Nero would happen in Athens or wherever he happened to be going. That's what parousia meant, the presence or arrival of the emperor. Paul uses this word to describe what he calls, quote, the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4.15. See also 1 Thessalonians 2.19, 3.13, 5.23, 2 Thessalonians 2.1 and 1 Corinthians 15.23. In all those places he talks about the coming of the Lord. So that's the parousia. Now, he also uses the word epiphania. And epiphania means manifestation. Manifestation or appearance. He uses this word epiphania. This is very interesting. When he's speaking both of Christ's first coming and his second coming, he calls them both epiphania. If you look at 2 Timothy 1.10, and then 2 Thessalonians 2, 8, 1 Timothy 6, 14, 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 8, and Titus 2 and 13. There, the word epiphania, meaning manifestation or appearance. And he's talking there about Christ's first coming and second coming. Another word he uses to describe uh, Christ's return is apocalypsis. Apocalypsis which means it can be rendered revelation or revealing, the day that Christ is revealed. Look at 1 Corinthians 1.7 and 2 Thessalonians 1.7. However, the term that he uses most often, more often even than parousia, 
is the day. The day of Jesus Christ or the day of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5.2, he says, and I quote, For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And you can see that also in 1 Corinthians 1.8.5.5 and 2 Corinthians 1.14, Philippians 1.6 and 10, Philippians 2.16, 2 Thessalonians 1.10 and 2 Timothy 1.18. In all those references you will see that he uses the day of the Lord. Now, those of you who have attended some of my Bible studies before, particularly the one about the minor prophets, will know that they used the term the day of the Lord a lot. For example, Amos, Isaiah, Joel. Now, although this day of the Lord will come suddenly and surprise many people, it should not catch God's people unawares. 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 and 6, he says, and I quote, But you are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober, so that we are ready and prepared for the day of the Lord when it comes. So he's hooking back into the Old Testament by quite deliberately by using the phrase the day of the Lord. It's what the prophets talked about. It was always also connected with the judgment of God upon the nation in, in um, Old Testament times. So you've got those links back to it. So that's the parousia and the epiphania, the apocalypsis and the day of the Lord. All talking about uh, Christ's return in power and glory. Now associated with the parousia is the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead. When Christ returns in power and glory, always associated with that in Paul's writing, is the resurrection of the dead. Now some people at Corinth were pouring scorn on this notion about the resurrection of the dead. And Paul's starting point in attacking this disbelieving viewpoint is the resurrection of Christ himself. And Paul outlined two main proofs that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead. And you can find them in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 11. And we did look at them, in fact, back in study five. The first is the fact of their salvation. The fact of their salvation. The fact that they have been saved is a proof of the resurrection of Christ because a dead saviour can't save anybody. Right, so that's number one for proof. And secondly, it's the witness of those who encountered the risen Christ. Right back in study one, we looked at that. Hundreds of witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. Not to mention Paul himself on the road to Damascus. So the fact of Christ's resurrection is proof and testimony to the fact that the resurrection of the dead will also take place. So we read in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 14 and 17 to 19, I'm quoting from here. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can you, some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. 
And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Your faith's futile. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost, in other words, those who have died, are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. And he then goes on to point out that Christ's resurrection is God's assurance and God's guarantee to us that we too will be raised. So his point is because Christ has been raised, so will the, the, all the believers will also be raised. 1 Corinthians 6.14 By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. 2 Corinthians 4.14 because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. See also Romans 6, 5 for something very similar. To 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 23, quote, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So he was the first for it to happen to. And as he did... He is the promise that the rest will go behind. Remember the first fruits things all to do with the harvest. In what they had in the Old Testament, they gave the first fruits of the harvest to the temple, to God. They sacrificed the first fruits to God in, in a promise that the rest of the crop was going to follow on behind. If they didn't believe that, they wouldn't have given the first fruits, would they? Because they just starved to death. So the first fruits, it's important. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. And uh, we talked a lot about firstfruits and Adam and Christ back in studies 5 and 6. So Paul has written previously to the Thessalonians, explaining to them what happens to the souls of Christians who have died, as this was a subject of a great deal of concern and debate among them. And Paul's very clear that the souls of believers are in God's safekeeping and that their souls and bodies will be reunited at the parousia. And so he writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 17, and I quote, We do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Just to break off here in the quote, Paul seems to be counting himself among those who are still alive. We who are still alive. We will, you see, he's thinking it's coming, it's coming tomorrow. All right, so that's just another indication of that. Continuing the quote, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. That's 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 17. You can also see that last bit in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52. Now this event, uh, described as being caught up, is often referred to as the rapture. That Christ comes and he takes, he catches up his faithful people and he takes them. We've mentioned this word already when we were thinking about is this before the man of lawlessness, is it after, you know, and so on. There's all sorts of debates about it. Although interestingly, this word, this phrase, the rapture, is never ever used in scripture. You won't find it anywhere actually in the Bible. It's just a word that's been coined to uh, refer to this particular time of Christ's return and uh, taking his people out. Now when Paul went to Athens and he preached about the resurrection there, he was met with derision, if you remember. He was met with derision from the philosophers who wanted to get rid of the body, not to keep it. If you look at Acts 17 and verse 32. In any case, they said, how could the body be resurrected when much of it decays in the ground? How can the body be resurrected when much of it decays in the ground? Now you understand that I'm trying to put across here what Paul was, Paul was teaching. Uh, there's a whole different evening we could do on uh, what we think about it and discuss it and what the questions are that are raised for it. I'm fully aware of all that and we have different opinions about it, no doubt. But we, we need to really look at what was being said. And these philosophers said to Paul, basically, the resurrection's a nonsense. You know, your body decays in the ground. How can it happen? Paul actually agrees with that. He agrees with that. He says that it's foolish to think of the resurrection in that way. Now Paul's explanation is that Christ will not, in fact, reassemble all the parts of the dead body together again. Rather, he teaches that Christians will receive glorified bodies like the glorified body of Christ. Christ. Now the dead body he describes as being like a seed planted in the ground with the resurrection body being the flower that comes from that seed. So if we look at 1 Corinthians 15 35 to 49 I'm quoting from that passage. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he's determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendour of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendour of the earthly bodies is another. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. 
It is sown in dishonour. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, meaning Adam, so we will bear the image of the heavenly man, Christ. And writing to the Philippians, Paul adds, quote, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. That's Philippians 3, 21. So just as Christ has a glorified body, so that is what's going to happen to us, Paul's teaching us. And on another occasion, Paul speaks again of this experience, but this time he uses different imagery. In 2 Corinthians 5, 1 to 2 and verse 4, he says, and I quote, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. He's not referring to bricks and mortar, he's referring to the body. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, our heavenly body, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. In other words, eternal, something that's eternal and never dies. Now, interestingly here, Paul reverses the familiar imagery of death and grave doing the swallowing, Instead, picturing them being swallowed up themselves by eternal life. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, 54, in the quotation that I'm going to give you in a moment. In the light of this, Paul goes on to talk excitedly about the wonder of what will happen to Christians at the parousia as mortal, perishable beings are transformed into ones that are immortal and imperishable. So I'm quoting from this well-known passage now, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 55. Paul writes, quote, Listen, I tell you a mystery. Before we go any further, that's a very important word. You, however much you study, you're not going to get this nailed down. I'm sorry. It's just not possible. Right? There's too many questions still that don't get answered, questions that we ask. You know, if we knew it all, there'd be no mystery left. And he's saying, look, this is a mystery. We, probably because we can't understand it. It's not something we can grasp with our human mind. So let me tell you, I'll tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed. So he's talking about the people who are still alive when Christ comes. We will not all sleep. We won't all die, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet shall sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. We who are alive will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. Then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? So 
matter what happens to us at death, no matter what state we're in after death, where we're buried or we're cremated or we were hung, drawn and quartered or we were burned at the stake, they did all these things in the past in the belief that this would take a person's eternal life away. And of course, if they'd read Paul properly, they'd have realised that that's not what Paul is talking about at all. He's talking about we all perish and it's not our bits that are assembled again, right? It is a glorified body that is given to us. It's like the body's old body's planted in the ground and it grows into a new glorified body, a spiritual body. The natural body becomes, is transformed into a spiritual body. This is a mystery. We don't know how this is going to happen, but this is how it's going to be. Now, this next bit I've written almost verbatim on your outline because I wanted you to get it straight, okay? So in summary then, Paul is saying that for believers, the grave is not the end. The body dies, but the soul goes to be with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8, Philippians 1.20-24. When Christ returns, he will bring the soul with him and raise the body in glory, uniting them together to share his glory forever. And the bodies of those who are still alive at Christ's return will be instantly transformed to be like his glorious body. So if I can try and summarise it in a few lines of what Paul is saying, that seems to me to be it. Now, some people maintain that Paul implies one period of time elapses between Christ's resurrection and the parousia and another period of time between the parousia and the end of the world, saying that at the parousia, it's only believers who are resurrected and taken out of this world. In other words, the rapture. So Christ comes back, the parousia, in power and glory, takes the church, the rapture, and then there's another period of time between that happening and the actual end of the world. And during this time, which is known as the millennium, a period of a thousand years, which you read about in Revelation, Christ subjugates all authorities and powers and reigns over them. And after this period, quoting from 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 25, the end will come when he, that's Christ, hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominions, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So you've got uh, Christ's return and the parousia and then you've got this gap, the millennium and then you have the end of the world. And some people believe that Christ and his saints will literally reign for a thousand years on the earth. You only get this reference to um, the millennium in one small bit of Revelation. I believe it's Revelation 20. I meant to look it um, look it up before I came out. Then, after that, there'll be a final resurrection, followed by the last judgment, the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, Romans 8, 19 and 21, and the destruction of death. He writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, quote, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Others maintain that the parousia, followed by the end of the world will happen exactly as Paul describes, without any millennium. That all powers and authorities will bow to Christ at his coming 
And in those verses, 50, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 5, Christ is in fact describing, sorry, Paul is in fact describing Christ's reign over the course of history, not some millennium period. Still others would say that we need to treat with caution what Paul has to say on the subject of parousia, remembering to take into account how he viewed the world. It made perfect sense to Paul that Jesus would come back down to earth from heaven, although some scholars insist that Paul would have believed that heaven is a different dimension of reality and not some place up there. So, depends what you believe about heaven. Since our perceptions and knowledge of the world and the universe are very different to Paul's, they cannot support the views that Paul held and in the light of which he described the return of Christ. So because of that, taking into account Paul's worldview and the worldview that we have now, which are completely different, it makes more sense to take what he said as symbolic, as poetic, as picture language because taking it literally is fraught with problems and difficulties. So that is another viewpoint to put in to the melting pot. Whatever our viewpoint is, I would suggest, surely it's far more important to focus on what Paul is teaching us through his dramatic descriptions of the end times rather than concerning ourselves with whether it will literally happen as he described. Will there actually be a trumpet? and things like that. People get really hung up about these sort of issues. you know. And will the sky really roll back? And will everybody see Jesus at once? And what about all the people who are driving down the motorway? And suddenly it goes on and on and on and on, doesn't it? Right. So really, maybe it's best to take a step back and say, hey, wait a minute, the world's changed so much since Paul's day. He might have suited that particular worldview, but now... Perhaps we need to look at it in a different way. Of course, that's not just with this, that's with quite a lot of biblical teaching which was given dramatically to produce an effect in people's reactions. I think about Jesus telling us to chop our hands off and pull our eyes out and do all sorts of nasty things to our bodies if we're lacking self-control in that area. Dramatic language didn't mean us to do it literally, it's symbolic. A lot of teaching is given in this kind of way. So we have to really look at it very, very carefully before we start um, punching the literal line on it. We have to be very cautious, I think. It's perfectly plausible to believe that Christ will return in power and glory, subjugate all that's evil, gather all those who know him as saviour, both the living and the dead, equipping them for life in heaven, whatever form life in heaven may take, and dealing with unrepentant sinners without believing that it will all happen literally as set out by Paul. But Paul is teaching that it's going to happen. Christ is going to come back and we're going to be with him forever. That's surely the important point. How it occurs, frankly, I couldn't care less. I'm I'm quite happy to trust the Lord in all these things and say, even so, come Lord Jesus. I put my faith in you and that's where I'm going and I'm happy to do that. And if you're not, well, fine. You keep trying to work it out. Good luck. Then we move on to something called Judgment Day. In his letter to Titus, Paul speaks of waiting for the parousia. 
describing it as that, quote, blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, Titus 2.13. Our blessed hope. Remember what he means by hope? The appearing of the glory. Remember why he used glory? He used glory to actually get across the awesomeness of what awaits us. I mean, whatever heaven is, it's going to be awesome. Whatever life is like, eternal life is like, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be just amazing. I mean, we've just got a taste of what God is able to do in this world. And if that doesn't blow your mind enough, it does mine, let alone what's going to um, be, be, be happening when God has a new heaven and a new earth. Now, this appearing of the glory, you see, is significant. It's significant because in the Old Testament, the glory of the Lord appearing is a warning to run for the hills, basically. It's a warning of impending judgment. For example, if you look at Numbers 16, 19. So the glory of the Lord appears. This is a fearsome, awesome thing. This is the day of the Lord. This is, this is judgment. Paul declares that the day of the Lord, as he calls it, is going to be a day of judgment for both Christians and unbelievers. But Christians have no need to fear this awesome day because we've repented in response to the gospel and we've been justified by our faith in Christ and we have eternal life. And we looked at that in great detail back in study six. Paul encourages the Thessalonians by exclaiming, and I quote from 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. That we don't have to face it, he's saying. However, although Christians escape the judgment facing unrepentant sinners, which Revelation 20, 11 to 15 talks about, and is often referred to as the judgment of the great white throne, Paul says that we're still accountable to God. Even though we escape that final judgment because of our faith in Christ, we're still accountable to God for the way we've lived our lives and for what we've done. 2 Corinthians 5.10, quote, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, meaning all Christians must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And you get the same sort of idea in Romans 14.10. Now the judgment seat of Christ. The term judgment seat comes from the Greek word bema. B-E-M-A, Bema. The Bema was the platform or dais in Greek towns from which orators would speak to the people and from which rulers would give their decisions. That's what the Bema was and that's what it was for. If you look at Matthew 27, 19 and Acts 12, 21 and Acts 18, 12. Now, using dramatic language and imagery, Paul says that he's there at the beamer seat where our deeds will be judged by fire and the value of our ministries will be revealed for what they truly are. Now, let's be clear about this. No one can be saved through works that they have done. Not saying that, okay? No one can be saved through works they have done. We know that. But works 
are an evidence of our repentance. That's the point. Works are an evidence of our repentance and show the integrity of what we say that we believe. So in other words, it's putting into practice our faith. We do that through deeds. Okay. So 1 Corinthians 3, 13 to 15, quote, their work will be shown for what it is because the day, the day of the Lord, the beamer seat will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through flames. So again, you can see he's using a very dramatic picture here of the importance of the works of salvation that we do. That is going to, it's going to be tested. You see, Paul is making the point that God knows the real reasons why we've acted as we have. Nobody else does. God knows the reasons why we've acted as we have. And God knows that deeds done for the wrong motives will be shown up and discounted. So the motives for what Paul is saying is the motives why we do things are very important because we can't fool God. The real reasons for why you do as you do, you can't fool God. So 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5, quote, He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. And at that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, the Bema seat was also the place where the awards were given out at the Greek Olympic Games. So the athletes would come to the Bema seat to receive their medals or their awards. So it's a very appropriate place, is it not, at which to receive what Paul calls our, quote, praise from God. I think he's going to give us gold, silver and bronze, but you get the point. And also to receive the crown we have attained through disciplining ourselves to serve God with integrity, to which Paul also refers. 1 Corinthians 9.27, quote, Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. So they go to the beamer seat and they get a crown. But it won't last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. And Paul also takes the opportunity to contrast the glory of the two crowns. The game's crown has a fleeting glory which will last but a moment because next year they'll all be competing for it again. But the God-given crown, on the other hand, has an eternal glory which will last forever. And writing to Timothy, Paul speaks about another crown while we're on the subject of crowns. 2 Timothy 4, 8, quote, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. End of quote. Therefore, it seems that all Christians will receive this crown of righteousness, which is symbolic of the fact that we have been made righteous in God's sight through Christ. Another topic that we looked at a lot in study six, the way of salvation.
Now this last section that I'm coming to now is virtually verbatim on your outline. Again, because I want you to be able to take away and, and look at it. Now some people are of the opinion that Paul is quite right to say that Christians will be rewarded. Rewarded by God according to the, and the word is quality in 1 Corinthians 3.13, the quality of the deeds that they've done in their lives. Others are very uncomfortable with this idea. And they say that the service we give to God should stem from love for God without any thought of reward, save that of heaven itself, and Christ's commendation, well done, good and faithful servant, as in Matthew 25, 21. They consider the notion of rewards to be divisive and invidious, with some Christians receiving them and others not, depending on how our deeds stand up to the fire, 1 Corinthians 3, 13, the fire of God's scrutiny at the beam of judgment. They would argue that Paul uses the promise of rewards as a spur to do good works, as an incentive to stand firm during times of hardship and persecution. In a culture, and this is what, again, we always have to remember the culture of Paul's day, a culture where rewards for faithful service were expected. So it's in keeping with the cultural perception of these things that Paul writes about this, you see. And even today, rewards are still expected in some quarters, aren't they? What civil servant working in Whitehall doesn't expect to get an OBE? They all do. They expect it as a reward for service. So don't think that mentality's gone away, all right? It's still the same in certain areas as it was in Paul's day. Now, as for God's judgment on unrepentant sinners, Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, quote, Christ Jesus will judge the living and the dead. This will happen, moving on to 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 to 10. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among those who have believed." And then down to 2 Thessalonians 2.12, all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. End of quote. Now how are, to we, are we to understand all this? Well, some see this punishment as being separation from God in hell for eternity. Whereas others see it as being annihilation. They are destroyed, everlasting destruction, which shuts them out of eternal life, which they will never experience because they are unrepentant sinners. Again, it's a matter of debate. You'll find theologians who argue on both sides. Right? And if you're interested in it, books have been written on this subject that you can get hold of and study on further. As with all that's been discussed in this chapter, and with this I do really conclude, we can only wait with bated breath to see how God's purposes will indeed be fulfilled when at last he comes to establish his kingdom in all its glory and fullness at the end of 
the world.